the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, they didn't take my advice. Imagine that. I made a perfectly sensible suggestion for how to open the debate last night. I suggested, with a yes or no answer, this question. Do you believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president in 2020? So they blew a chance. Here's another question that I would have included, and it would have come with a lovely picture of Rachel Levine up on the screen at the time I was asking the question. And I I would have asked each panelist to respond. This would be my question. Is Rachel Levine, the current U.S. Assistant Secretary of Health, a woman? Simple question. And the answer would have spoken volumes. The simple answer, of course, is no, he's not. But would everybody have just said no? How many would have qualified their answer? Uh, as it, and with, uh, by qualifying your answer, what you're saying is maybe. As it turned out, there was not one question related, as far as I know, to the transgender insanity that is in the news every day. You would think that one of the moderators or a producer would have thought to include something about new laws passed in some states that allow kids to have their bodies mutilated without their parents' consent or some of the indoctrination that's going on in schools right now, or men competing against women in sports, who really needed to hear the candidates say that they think Joe Biden's doing a really bad job? Overall, it was a pretty boring debate, I thought. I bailed out early, watched Tucker Carlson's interview with Donald Trump on what used to be called Twitter. Um, Not a lot of new ground broken there either, although he did ask Trump if, based on the level of hatred that the Democrats obviously have for him, he asked if he ever, if Trump ever worries about being assassinated. Now, I would have been more impressed if Carlson had pressed Trump on how he feels about the COVID vaccines that he bragged about getting into circulation now that we know they don't work and why he didn't fire Anthony Fauci. Well, anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk to a guy who wrote what I think is the best analysis of the debate uh, so far. Uh, so best one I've seen. He's a regular guest here. You'll uh, recognize him, I'm sure. Press, professor of Communications, Jeff McCall. His column is up at the Hill right now. And in our second half hour, we're going to talk about another topic that got little or no attention last night, our ridiculous national debt. Adam Angieski of OpenTheBooks.com, as usual, has all the ridiculous numbers. Stick around. Well, I've seen and heard a lot of post-debate analysis, but the best I've seen so far was done by a regular guest on this very radio station uh, and this show, Jeffrey McCall, a uh, a frequent guest here, professor of communications at DePaul University and media critic for The Hill, and he joins us now. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Great piece today. Thank you very much, John. Well, the, uh, the headline says, the GOP debate devolved into media spectacle. Media is to blame. Where would you like to start? There are so many different things to say here. You know, the major problem here with trying to put political dialogue on television is that television is really not a good medium for serious and in-depth and nuanced kind of discussions. And unfortunately, 
the TV producers and the TV channels that carry these debates get into overdrive, wanting to make them spectacles rather than to focus on serious dialogue. And I think that's a real inhibiting factor for the candidates, but also just for the national dialogue that we make these political debates, particularly when you've got eight people on stage at once, you make these things into more like game shows where the moderators are trying to like get people to say controversial things or they're lobbying, you know, kind of off the, off the radar kind of topics to them. I mean, it struck me as really weird last night that the first question out of the box for the whole debate had to do with a, a country music song. Yeah. And I'm thinking, come on, you guys, this, this kind of minimizes the seriousness of the debate. Now, I mean, I know that when you've got all these people on the stage and the primaries are still five months off and the election's a year and a half off, that you can't get too worked up here. But when the opening question to the eight people who you know, want to be president is, hey, hey, what do you think about this country song from this guy writing about north of Richmond? It's kind of like, geez, that's kind of in the off-the-radar kind of way. And, and of course, there were some serious questions brought up. I mean, we had to talk about Ukraine and that sort of thing. But, you know, even late in the program, they, you know, the, the co-host uh, Martha McCallum introduced a lightning round, which, of course, sounds like a game show. And her first question in the lightning round was to ask Chris Christie what he thought about UFOs. Yeah. And I thought, boy, you know, with, with all the things going on in the world and all the issues about the economy and that sort of thing, I mean, we're talking to some guy about whether he thinks UFOs are real. And I just thought, you know, th this, this is television in action and television's not a cerebral medium, as you know, uh, and it just minimized the whole thing. And I mean, th this is not atypical for political debates going back years, of course, but it just strikes me as odd that the television medium and the producers and the channels and even the RNC, which of course has to have its hands over this thing, can't make this you know, more substantial and sophisticated than to make it like a game show. Yeah, well, you know, if you think about it, it's only been in the last 25 years or so, which, um, you know, may, may seem like a long time, but in the history of the country and the history of political debates, uh, there was no cable news. There was no place to put a debate, uh, a, uh, one of the parties uh, having a primary debate, and where you could have had the time. In other words, in 1990, where would you have put the Republican Party uh, uh, primary debate with six or eight candidates? So we, there's no, there was no place to put it. So it, it couldn't happen as a TV show. It might happen as an actual debate in an auditorium somewhere, but nobody was going to televise it. You might hear it on uh, NPR radio or something like that, but you were never going to get a, a, a primetime TV show with, with that on it. Yeah, you uh, a couple of generations, uh, or actually even just one probably, and you only had the three major broadcast networks, and they would not have given up a couple of hours of their prime time, you know, for eight candidates, none of whom may ever make it, you know, to the general election, uh, because they could have they couldn't have afforded the loss of advertising revenue for one thing, but it would have been a disaster ratings wise as well. So this is an event that is designed for cable television, uh, and it's the cable channels that primarily carry these. Fox News last night, Fox Business gets the next one in a few weeks, 
uh, but it will probably be equally as vacuous. Uh, and the, the sad thing here is, too, is that when you force political dialogue into television, you force candidates, even serious ones and even well-spoken ones, to have to play that game. And, you know, it, it's astounding, you know, to see the, the moderators at the start of the, of the program say, well, we're going to ask you questions, and then you'll have one minute to answer. Yeah. And, I'm thinking, and then they say, oh, what should we do with re- Ukraine? I'm, well, we're supposed to deal with that in 60 seconds? Or you've got decay in Americans majors, America's major cities. What are we going to do to stop that? And they're supposed to answer that in 60 seconds. And then the other, I thought, you know, absolutely zany part of this is that if a candidate mentions an, an, an opponent on the stage during their 60 seconds, then that opponent automatically gets 30 seconds to respond. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's a disincentive for any of the eight people on stage to actually mention any of their opponents, because as soon as they do, they're teeing them up to have 30 <laughs> seconds to take a run back at them. Now, yeah. that didn't stop some of them from doing it, but that's one of the reasons Vivek Ramaswamy ended up getting uh, more time than anybody else, because people were taking shots at him, and Brett Baer would say, oh, well, you've just been challenged, so you get an extra 30 seconds. And poor guys like Doug Burkham are standing off at the end of the panel. I mean, nobody's going to attack him. He's the governor of North Dakota, and, and they're like not trying to give him any recognition at all. But he doesn't get a chance to respond, because nobody's attacking him. I'm a, I must say... I like Doug Burgum. I thought he came off pretty yeah. well. He seemed kind of reasonable and a sensible guy, uh, well-spoken. I wish they'd given him uh, enough uh, enough time to really make more of a case for himself. And, you know, it's one of those things now where he may not even get on the next debate stage uh, and won't really have a chance to get his campaign off the ground. But it's really a bizarre thing, and it's a sad reflection on the way that we try to do America's uh, political dialogue these days. And, you know, I, I, I suffered through the two hours of it to watch it because I was planning to write the column you referenced yeah. that I had in the Hill earlier today. Uh, but uh, and, and it pains me to have to say that because I really think we want citizens to be informed. We want people to be engaged in the political dialogue. But my guess is if your average independent voter or your casual news consumer browsed through Fox News last night and stumbled into this debate, you know, after 10 or 15 minutes, they'd be going like, God, I got to go watch something, you know, on the game show channel. Yeah. Well, I um, I have to watch it, I guess, um, because I do a radio show here, but I didn't make it through the whole thing. I bailed out and went and watched uh, Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, which, as I mentioned in my open, I, I didn't think was all that impressive either. He didn't ask him any nearly enough tough questions, um, but... I, at least it was it was a no commercial, one on one discussion for like fifty two minutes, which you know, I I actually was able to sit through easier than than the debate. I, I think the best when I read your piece, the the best point you made is the one you just talked about here, is that the format. It's amazing, as you said, the format actually makes it. If you if you're if you're if you're going to coach somebody going into the next debate, you say to them, listen. Whatever you do, don't challenge this uh, Ramaswamy guy's guy because we don't want him getting any airtime. So whatever he says, just let him go because if you challenge him, he's just going to get more time. So what, no matter how ridiculous uh, it is that something that he says is, just let it go. That, that would actually be the smart strategy, wouldn't it? 
that that would have been the smart strategy uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, as you mentioned, and as I put in the column, the person gets more time. But the other thing is, Vivek Ramaswamy is is pretty charismatic. Yeah, uh, he's got he's got a big personality. He's photogenic. He has a polished speaking style, and he can go toe to toe with any of the people on that stage. He has an answer for anything they lob at him. So I wouldn't want to get in an, into an argument with this guy because. He's pretty polished, and, you know, he, he is a political novice, but in reality, that probably appeals to a wide range of voters out there, perhaps, perhaps particularly the independent-minded voters. They might be glad for a guy to be a political novice who's not coming in with all the baggage of previous, like, politician kind of rhetoric and that sort of thing. And it was kind of funny that Nikki Haley kept challenging him that he had no foreign policy experience. And I'm thinking, yeah, that might be a good thing, actually. Not not to mention right. that Nikki Haley was governor of South Carolina uh, and had no foreign policy experience before Trump appointed her to be the U.N. ambassador. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and the thing is, um, you are when you have some, it's like Donald Trump back in 2016. He, he was up there with like 13 people, which is just ridiculous anyway. But um if if what what if you're going to have uh, someone like Ramaswamy on there, his whole his his number one sales point is I'm not a politician, so saying you don't have any experience is is a compliment. Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm an outsider. That's why people should elect me. That that's what Donald Trump said, and it worked. So why would you attack this guy for not being a traditional politician when the last guy from your party? who won the presidency, was not a politician. Well, and also keep in mind that in 2008, Barack Obama showed up right. and portrayed himself as the outsider, and yep. he was quite inexperienced, even though he'd been in the Senate for a couple of years. He'd, he'd been in the Senate kind of unimpressively, uh, but he shows up as the outsider with all the mainstream people trying to challenge it, and he emerged. Yeah. So in this day and age, you know, crowing about how experienced you are and Chris Christie talking about, well, I was a prosecutor and I was a governor of an East Coast state. I'm kind of like, you know, that may not appeal to a lot of people. That might be a reason they don't want to support right. you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing is that, that I think was telling or should be telling um, and, and shouldn't and it should be a reason why nobody should be surprised that it becomes a TV show more than a debate. If you just watch the promos on Fox over the last few weeks, they're promoting it as a TV show. They're not promoting it as a debate. They're, and and, and it's, everybody's having a little bit too much fun. You know, the morning show is over there in Milwaukee at 8 in the morning talking about how exciting it's going to be. And, and, uh, and they have reporters running all over the place. Again, if, if this were... If there's, we're not a prime time show, it would be a bunch of guys or a bunch of people in an auditorium with serious questions, and there wouldn't be any showbiz, and it would be a better debate. But that you're, if you if it's promoted as a TV show, not as a debate. Yeah, you're exactly right, and I mean I understand that Fox gets to host it, and Fox wants to promote it, and they're wanting to drive people there. But you're right; the run up to this quote unquote debate. Uh, has been kind of nauseating because every time you tune into Fox, they're blowing off yeah. about hosting the first debate. And, you know, they're making it like the Super Bowl and they've got all their hosts out there at Milwaukee in the auditorium and stuff like that. And it's kind of like, hey, you know, I understand what you're trying to do here. But keep in mind, this was not like for the general election. And also, you didn't even have 
the leading candidate on the stage. And of all those eight candidates that were there yesterday, odds are only two or three of them are going to be any factor at all going forward. So, so as I put in my column, this was not the big leagues. In fact, this was not even the minor leagues of political debating. This was like a practice game in a softball league. Uh, and nobody should really get too wound up about it. And the fact that Fox bent over backwards to promote the thing almost shows kind of how superficial they understand this process that they created is, uh, and and it is overselling, you know, it's like trying to promote that, uh, you know, you've got this fancy new car to sell when it's actually a Yugo. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, I, I pay more attention than most people uh, do probably to the performance of the media people, the participants, the non-politician, non-politicians, I thought, uh, and I didn't get the feeling that you were too impressed in your column with Martha McCallum or Brett Baer, who looked to me like he could have used an enema sometime about, maybe about 10 minutes in. <laughs> he he just, uh, he's not very, I think he's overrated anyway, but that, I just didn't think they did a very good job either. Well, you know, I think Brett Baer does fine with his show. I mean, I watch his special report show uh, a couple times a week, you know, when it's on at 6 yeah. o'clock, and I, I think he's a, a solid uh, news person. I think he's a journalist. I think he takes his role seriously. And I think the way he runs the panel uh, at the end of that show, the commentary and analysis is pretty depth. Mm-hmm. But uh, trying to put these guys into a debate moderating you know, situation is a totally different challenge. And it doesn't help when the candidates, of course, are talking too long and they kept ringing that bell to shut people up. None of the candidates are going to stop just because they hear a bell. They're going to keep on talking and make their points. And, you know, and Brett was the one trying most to try to reel people in. But after 15 minutes, as you indicated, uh, nobody in the audience was paying attention to the, to the you know, calls to <laughs> no. calm down. The candidates were talking over each other and yelling at each other. And the moderators just totally lose control. And unless the moderators have the guts to just say, we're turning off the mic of that guy. Mm-hmm until uh, he pipes down, they don't have a, they don't have a club. They don't have any clout. And it, and it really did come off bad. And, and, and honestly, like I said, Martha McCallum, I thought with her questioning was the most superficial asking about the country music song and yeah. the lightning round about the UFOs. And I think Martha needs to step up her game as she does this in another setting at some point, which presumably she will down the road sometime. Uh, and again, that's not to say neither one of them, are solid and respected journalists, but uh, this challenge last night seemed to kind of escape them. Got about a minute left. Yeah, I, I guess it's proof that being a good um, news anchor or reporter doesn't make you a good debate moderator. Yeah, and honestly, I'm not. I don't like the idea of having TV personalities as debate no. debate moderators anyway, because right. they're all trying to do this to kind of you know enhance their image, to mm-hmm. enhance their credibility to spark ratings for their channel. I think it'd be great if, if, if and particularly for the general election, per, per, whether we have debates in the general election or not, that'll be interesting in the fall of 24. Will either presidential nominee want to show up for a debate? And that, that's pretty questionable, given that it might be Trump and or Biden. Uh, but I think we'd really be best to get away from political, or, or excuse me, media personalities hosting these debates and trying to find somebody who would have enough heft uh, and intellect to have a rational discussion with these people and run it more like a traditional debate rather than a TV show. 
Yeah, and that that would not then it wouldn't be a TV show, so that's never going to happen. But uh, hey, everybody should check your piece out at thehill.com. Uh, Jeff, really, really good piece. I, as I said, I wasn't kidding. It's the best analysis I've seen anywhere so far. Appreciate you coming on I again, as usual. I appreciate that comment. Thank you. Okay, we'll be right back. Well, if they talked about our national debt during the debate last night, it couldn't have been for very long. Or maybe I missed it when I bailed out and went to Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. But and Adam Andrzejewski of OpenTheBooks.com, he's the a, a founder and CEO of it, uh, he, he would have included a few questions on that subject if he had been moderating, and he joins us now. Adam, thanks for coming on. I'm, am I right that you might have included a question or two about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, off, off the jump, uh, Ambassador Haley talked about the national debt and, and the problem with Republicans going hog wild for earmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that was followed up by a candidate. I forget who now. There were so many that also talked about the national debt. But then I didn't really hear much conversation about it for the rest of the debate. It's not as sexy as some of the other subjects. Uh, but you, you wrote today on your substack that the national debt is our biggest national security threat. Why is that? Well, when you rack up such a large national debt versus the size of your economy, the debt and the interest payments on that debt start to crowd out basic government services, like the largest expense of our federal government is the Department of Defense. And in 2025, the national debt, the interest is projected to equal the total expenditure on our defense budget. And so that's that's the problem. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense for somebody. If you if you apply it to your household budget, that you would spend more on interest than you're spending on food, basically. <laughs> right, exactly. And so it's been a big problem. Um, but it's a, it's a recent phenomenon. In 1980, so a little more than 40 years ago, incredibly, and John, this number is very stunning. The total national debt was less than a trillion dollars. It was 908 billion dollars. You know, 1776 to 1980, and it's less than a trillion dollars. Fast forward a little over 40 years, and our national debt is now pushing $33 trillion. And that's happened on a bipartisan basis. For far too long, Republicans have joined Democrats to drain the U.S. Treasury from the left. Yeah, I I, I wish I had thought to look this up before I had you on. Um, Maybe you've seen it somewhere I saw... Some uh, a a uh, someone had done the analysis of what a trillion actually means and applied it to like how many what a trillion hour a trillion hours would take you back to like fifty thousand BC or, so, or something like that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's some ridiculous number like that to, to, because because otherwise there's no way of putting a trillion into perspective for anybody, is there? Yeah, I mean it's you know. I, America is rich enough to have a soft social safety net program, but this kind of spending, the levels of spending since 1980 across the entire continuum of government are completely out of control. And just here's an example of Republicans draining the U.S. Treasury from the left. You know, they voted in a secret vote. Kevin McCarthy allowed this to bring back earmarks. Nancy Pelosi, of course, and the Democrats wanted to bring them back. Republicans voted to join them. And the year-end budget uh, bill that passed just eight months ago included 7,500 earmarks for $16 billion. But here's the update on the story, because I know we've covered that on your program before, John, in a stunning fashion. The update is in 2024, 
Republicans in the House, the top 63 earmarkers, every single one of them is a Republican. You don't hit a Democrat till the 64th largest earmarker in the bills that are coming out this fall. So there's no hope. If the, if the, because the Republicans are, the, are out there selling themselves as the, the party that doesn't overspend and is smart with our money. I know. So the only hope rests with you and I and the American people. Yeah. Like it, it, the American experiment has always rested with each of us on an individual basis. And look, there's a quiet revolution going on right now. And first freedoms are under attack. I don't care if it's religion or speech or assembly uh, or, you know, a fiscal revolution. And so real people, now's the time. If you didn't think anything significant was going to happen on public policy and politics in your lifetime, well, now's the time to start speaking. I, so I, I now I've, I've found the um, this little uh, how much is a trillion dollars graphic or or analysis. So for people who uh, don't understand how much a trillion dollars is, they could save if they saved a million dollars. Let's just say they reduced it by a million dollars each day. It would only take two thousand seven hundred and forty years to reduce <laughs> it by a trillion. Wow. 2,740 years, a million dollars, not a year, a day. That's amazing. Yeah. And and so take that times well, 33, and that's what they've racked up on the nation's credit card. Scary. So what are these? So, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we took an analysis of a dollar. Like if you were, John, you know, in 1972, I was three years old, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I had a dollar. Like I was still, I was, I started young, saving money. And a dollar in 1972, you'd have to be holding seven of them today to equal the purchasing power. Yeah. Now listen, I, I saw you put that in your piece, so I, I came up with a little calculation of my own. <laughs> in 1972, I was just out of college. I'm old. Um, I made $250 a week selling cable TV subscription, mm. subscriptions door-to-door in 1972. Uh, based on what you just said here, that would have been $91,000 a year today nice. selling cable TV door-to-door. And, and I worked about 18 hours, 18, incredible. 20 hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. No, you were highly successful and very persuasive. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> I didn't feel like I was making what would be $91,000 today. <laughs> I, I did. Amazingly enough, I did go out and buy a new car, but it cost me $2,850 uh, yeah, for a brand-new uh, Triumph Spitfire sports car. Wow, um, twenty eight fifty was brand new out of the showroom. Um, yeah, so that's that, like a little less than twenty grand today. Yeah, so those those things have, that's changed. But so that neither has part, changed. No, neither party is better than the other when it comes to overspending, and the Republicans are actually worse. Well, on, on earmarks, I mean, on, oh, in earmarks, total, okay. they're better, of course. Okay. Um, I mean, Democrats want to load up for additional trillions of dollars worth of overspending on these omnibus. Uh, spending yeah. bills. Republicans are definitely holding the line on that. So, so in in that regard, obviously there is a complete difference between the parties. But uh, you know, Republicans are certainly enabling a lot of soft corruption to go on underneath those spending caps. Yeah, I think maybe the the Republicans might be a little bit more dishonest in this case because they do sell themselves as the fiscally responsible, right. and they're out there. They're just as bad. I guess you could say in a different way. That's right. 
So, look, it's always been this way. It's human nature. Our founders, for instance, John Adams, he recognized this. They knew exactly what they were starting back in the day. John Adams said a democracy never lasts long. It soon exhausts and wastes and murders itself. There was never a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. So, look, we need to cheat history. And I think the way back, John, I want to give everyone hope listening to the program today. We need to embrace the transparency revolution, every dime, online, in real time. If we have that level of robust and aggressive transparency, we can hold these people that we elect and the unelected bureaucrats accountable for their tax and spend decisions. We need it in real time. Yeah, but again, I I look at that number that I just threw out there, 1,000, what was it, Uh, 2,740 years at a million dollars a day is one right. trillion, and you're looking at uh, thirty-two, thirty-three trillion dollars. It's almost like you have to just blow it all up and start over again. You, there's no way you can fix that. Just, no well, enough, I, the, the planet you know, will there, be gone by then. And that's why economic growth is necessary for the ongoing concern of the United States of America. When you have economic growth, when you have more productive people in the country creating more and expanding your economy, uh, these amounts will melt. Yeah, but do you think it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where the number is so ridiculous? As you said, it was a trillion, not even a trillion dollars in 1980, and now it's 30 times that, that all the politicians everywhere, they just look at it and say, hey, listen, you know, 30 trillion, 50 trillion, who cares? It's just a number. It's a fantasy. So it's not, well, it, nobody looks at it as even something that's real. And that's, that's the biggest problem because if it's not real, everyone creates a plan to enrich themselves. And that's where we're at right now. So we need leadership in this country. Two things hard spending caps, everything under the cap, and then, uh, you know, diminish the size, scope, and power of government, get it out of the way, unleash freedom and liberty for the private sector, and grow this economy. Those two things make the U.S. solvent over the long term. So if the national debt tripled under Ronald Reagan, though, why would anybody believe that it's ever going to go the other way? Well, it was two and a half times okay. under, uh, under Reagan, and that was over an eight-year period. And obviously, that ushered in an unprecedented era of prosperity. So I think Reagan would argue that that was a necessary investment in the Cold War to defeat the Soviet Union and break them apart. Mm-hmm. All of his predecessors kept up the level of spending. You know, uh, Bush, the first Bush, Clinton, Bush too, you know, followed by Obama and Trump and now Biden. And so... You know, I don't blame Reagan. Reagan laid down the gauntlet. He laid down the the investment to you know for our future. He gave us a, a future that in all of world history no one has ever seen, and it was his predecessors and the prede- and the Republicans and Democrats in Congress that continued the pro- prolific spending. Yeah, uh, he spent all that money and increased the debt doing something a legitimate function of the uh, of the government which is right. national defense which is actually the number one the first priority is national defense so it's a right. little different when it's when the money is spent on something like that and then as you said you see the results the soviet union went down the toilet right it ushered in an unprecedented era of prosperity that investment from reagan and so um, then you know after that challenge is over we should have scaled it back but you know, folks were too uh, comfortable and living high off the hog 
and continued to spend. And now they've they've spent us into oblivion. And now, now we have to take hard measures. We have to cheat history. We have to be the democracy that pulls itself back from the brink. Well, I, I think some one of the candidates should have come out should come out and say, "I propose that we save a mil, a, a million dollars every day for the next two thousand seven hundred and forty years <laughs> and get this debt cleared up." See if that, see if that, see if that goes and he, anywhere. Look, you know, Rand Paul has has put to, put it to a vote in the U.S. Senate, and it lost it lost two to one. The penny plan, the penny plan would have made the U.S. solvent, uh, grew the economy, and and capped government spending to an increase of one percent per year. Very reasonable to do, especially during you know we're not at quote unquote war right now. So, uh, and it lost in the Senate two to one. People should run on it and challenge those people who voted against it and defeat them at the ballot box, and that's what it's going to take. Well, is there anything – your site – we're talking to Adam Angievsky of uh, OpenTheBooks.com. Your site is dedicated to exposing government waste. Is there anything more wasteful than the interest payment on the debt? How could there be anything more wasteful? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll give you some examples of some earmarks that will blow your mind. So – uh, the Democrat Patrick Leahy, he was the Senate Appropriations Chair, very powerful position. He earmarks $30 million to the Honors College at the University of Vermont, the state he's from. He's going to retire on the way out the door. In May, after he's retired, they renamed the college after him. <laughs> That's nice. Then he did it again. Yeah. The Burlington International Airport, $34 million earmark. In April, they renamed the airport after Patrick Leahy. Oh, boy. So I don't know if, you know, I mean, look, the interest on the debt that is collected by investors, that's collected by the private sector, they make an investment, they get a return on their money. It's earmarks like I just described that are just absolute waste. Yeah. What are the Fitch ratings and why are they important? Well, you've got, uh, you know, just a couple of major credit rating agencies in the country. One is Moody's. Moody's downgraded our debt a decade ago. I think it was 2011. And Fitch, they got around to downgrading our debt finally uh, from AAA just a couple of weeks ago. It did set off an intermediate sell-off in the stock market, and it did start to wake people up again as to the real ongoing concern of the country and of our lack of a firm fiscal foundation. So, and that, I mean, how do you, what, does any, nobody even knows what the Fitch rating is. How's anybody going to get anybody to pay attention to that? Well, and that's why, you know, I think a picture says a thousand words. If you come to OpenTheBooks.com, right mm-hmm. in the middle of our homepage is a graph of the U.S. national debt from 1980 to today, and you can see the stunning rise through multiple presidents. So, you know, you had, you know, after Reagan – the national debt was only $2.6 trillion in 1988. And then under the first Bush, it rose to $4 trillion. Under eight years of Clinton, you know, he held it in relative check. It rose to $5.7 trillion. With W, it rose to $10 trillion, $20 trillion under Obama. <laughs> One four-year term under Trump, $28 trillion, And now Biden's pushing $33 trillion. So we're doing about $5 trillion a year right now. <laughs> well, look, that is unsustainable. And and you can't print a platinum trillion dollar coin to pay off the debt, uh, well, you know, to to fuel spending. I mean, that's just 
that's modern, uh, you know, monetary theory, and it, it will bankrupt the country. That comes to um, about ten million seven hundred thousand or seven hundred uh, uh, million ten ten million dollars a day. Let's say for twenty seven hundred and forty years, that'll clean that right up. We'll get that fixed. <laughs> uh, John, you're elected. Let's you, roll. Yeah, you got a lot of work to do out there, Adam. But you're doing great work. Uh, what do you got next? I got about fifty seconds here. What do you got coming up next on Open the Books that we can look for? We're rolling out on Back to School. We're rolling out all kinds of education stories, foreign uh, entities on gifts and grants, undue foreign influence in our institutions of higher education. We're rolling out Governor Gavin Newsom's press in California that's extended to all the other states now on on plural genders, neo-pronouns. I mean, some of this stuff is just going to make your head explode. Uh, <laughs> and so we're focused on education from now through Labor Day. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there's a little bit of waste involved there, too. Well, taxpayer money. We're funding all of it. Yeah, sick. Hey, Adam, I always love having you on. You always have great numbers, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you, John. Thanks okay. for having me back. Thank you. That's Adam Andrzejewski of OpenTheBooks.com. We'll be right back. Okay, I got some more numbers for you. This I love this uh, talking to Adam Angievsky about the, the what is it, thirty-two trillion dollar national debt. Just in case you've uh, not really paid any attention or didn't care or forgotten what a trillion is, a million seconds is twelve days. A billion seconds is thirty-one years. So if you're if you're fifty years old, you're what about Eh, not not quite two billion seconds. A trillion seconds? Remember, a million seconds is 12 days. A trillion seconds is 31,688 years. Okay? Uh, and this, this, is, this is pretty scary, too, for me. Because uh, you see that number. You know, a trillion used to be a number you never even heard. You know, is there, what's, what's next? A zillion? A quadrillion? I, I don't even know. Uh, but we, when we get up to bazillion, that's when I'll know. It's, I want to know how many years that is. One, one bazillion. Um, but according to Apple, this is really scary to me. This is, and, I, and I've said, by the way, many times uh, that the world being, the billions of people being equipped with their own video camera, pocket-sized, with which they can take videos and then disseminate to the world. It's one of the worst things ever to happen to the human race. Here's more proof of that. This is a fast fact about Trillion. According to Apple, over 3 trillion photos were taken worldwide using phones in 2021. That's <laughs> Just in case you don't think that too many people are out there taking pictures and they're, they're or too many pictures uh, up there on the Internet. 95,000 photos taken every second of every day. We're doomed. There's no hope. I don't even know why we continue to do this show, but I'll come back tomorrow and try it again. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.